On this episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be discussing the 1982 television movie Mazes and Monsters, starring Tom Hanks. Joining us for discussion will be author and comic book writer Troy Brownfield. Welcome to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, a movie podcast that features hosts Brandon and Cullen discussing a film considered but not limited to being a cult classic. The episode you are listening to will include plot spoilers and may contain harsh language. Follow CC Cavalcade on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to the show on cultcinemacavalcade.com, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are found. Please. Remember me. The seemingly innocent game, Mazes and Monsters. Listen, you play uh, Mazes and Monsters? Uh, I used to, but uh, I don't anymore. It's all imagination, is it? She's all right now. I have slain the gorge. But now and forever. This is Cult Cinema Cavalcade. This is episode 72. This is Brandon, and as always with me is your level 9 co-hoster, Cullen. Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! It's an easy joke. I don't care. I love it. No, I love that. Today we are here to discuss 1982's television film, Mazes and Monsters. Cullen, roll the die and tell us where our journey is taking us. Bound together by a desire to play mazes and monsters, Robbie and his three college classmates decide to move the board game into the local legendary cavern. Mazes and Monsters is directed by Stephen Hillard Stern and stars America's Tom Hanks, Wendy Crewston, David Wysocki, Chris Makepeace, Lloyd Bachner, and Psycho's Vera Miles. Welcome back to Colt Cinema Cavalcade. We hope you are... Back with us as we are climbing out of the pit and at the top, pulling us out, making his third appearance on the show. Someone must have smelled some hell and hit the panic button because it's Troy Brownfield. Satanic panic. It rhymes. We have inadvertently made you like our TV movie guide. Yeah, every once in a while I have a student be like, okay, this whole satanic panic thing in the 80s, did that really happen? And you're like, yes. (laughs) This stuff really happened. It went on forever. Fifth grade, we we had a bunch of people that would like play D&D like on lunch and stuff. And the lady that was like one of the people that oversaw the program, she came in and she saw this Monster Manual Dungeon Master's Guide. She like flipped out. We were not allowed to bring those to school. We were not allowed to play that. Returning champion, Hail Satan. Um, thanks for having <laughs> me back, guys. Thanks, Troy. When we conjure up demons, Troy shows Troy's up. Troy's there. 
Joy's there. You're kind so. of like our Constantine, I guess. And TV, Troy still hasn't graduated <laughs> to uh, to film Feature yet. Movies. bandwidth. It's it's a Satan-related TV TV movies. Yes. He cannot break out of the four by three barrier. <laughs> he's going to he's going to next graduate to straight to video um, VHS <laughs> rental movies. So how you so, doing, Troy? I'm doing well i have to say i've uh actually you know against all better judgment been looking forward to this one for a while because you know strangely enough the first time i did the show wnuf i hadn't seen it before it was something that you guys introduced me to and then mr boogity was one i saw you know on tv at the time that it was on i also saw mazes and monsters at the time that it was on on tv so yeah that's a really big weird (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thing to go back and revisit because I saw it the one time I saw it when it ran on TV like one afternoon in the 90s at some point I think I might have been in college because I remember watching it with a couple of friends like oh you guys got to see this <laughs> and then I haven't seen it since so going back and it was it was definitely a kind of a trip to revisit it in the timeline before we get too further, do you got anything currently going on that you want to plug into? A couple of things. Last time I was here, I mentioned that we had uh, successfully uh, kick-started the uh, Terminal Project for Eminent Press, the anthology comic. Um, mm-hmm. We've got more of that coming up. As always, my Sparkshooter webcomic at sparkshooter.com is ongoing. There's new pages every Wednesday. We're in Chapter 12 now. Which you appeared in? Was that your first appearance? No, I've been in okay. it um, before. Here, let me explain that really briefly um spark shooters set in the music scene of indianapolis around 2003 and it contains you know the leads are fictional leads are a fictional band but it also has other people from the scene over time and like a lot of people from actual bands uh like the shivers samsel devil to pay and stuff he's been in it greg brenner from the melody jeff sample from birdies and so a lot of real people well i was in it because i managed samsel and stuff and so like just kind of for fun one time, I threw myself in, and I uh, there's only one character that breaks the fourth wall, but I made it a joke about the two of us arguing over who was able to break the fourth wall. <laughs> and and at the end of that page, it's like, um, yeah, you'll see in like three pages after the big surprise. And so it was just like little <laughs> meta joke stuff, but, you know, nobody gave me you know, a bunch of crap about it because obviously it's all in good fun and it's based on real experiences, you know. It's as close as I'm going to get to a Wonder Years thing, I think. Uh, you're kind of narrating yourself a little bit it's uh, a lot of fun and like i said and carl and i are at the 12th chapter and we're probably looking to kickstart a trade paperback of the first six chapters uh, later in the year and then quick one other big comic project i'm working on paulo yonami who uh, is from brazil and who i've done some work on some of his titles and he did covers for blood queen at dynamite that i was working on he and i are working on a sword and sorcery project that is influenced by, are you guys ready? Sword yeah. Sorcery films of the 80s and mm-hmm. European power metal. Oh. <laughs> hey, it goes it sounds like it goes together. I think it's going to be a, a lot of fun. It's like the next Yor. There you go. It's like Yeah, except better. With, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you'll be listening to uh, Scorpions a lot, I trust, while you're uh, doing this. That could be. It's mainly sort of inspired by. There's a lot of bands that have like the operatically trained female lead singers, like these kind of amazing looking Valkyrie type women with opera voices backed by guys who kind of look like Megadeth. And uh, that's kind of the pocket <laughs> that we're in. It's it's funny. Like I think it'll make sense when you see it. The idea of where it comes from. 
Well, I'm kind of sold already. I mean, does, does it <laughs> does it at least have the potential to rock you like a hurricane? It does. Oh well, that's all I need. It, it will rock you like a hurricane. I can make no comment at this point on the rhythm of love, but <laughs> <laughs> it is entirely possible Excellent. that it will go worldwide live. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That sounds a uh... Sounds exciting, actually. Uh, we're Maces and Monsters. This has been an episode in the making for a while. It's finally here. We have hit up the Satanic Panic before. So those were like teasers up to this one. You know, it's like, oh, here we go. Now it's over. Now you guys got to look forward to something else. But this one comes based off a book that was based off a falsified case, pretty much. The Tom Hanks character in this is based off a real person as a like John Dallas John Egbert. 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 Yep. The third. It was part of the fuel of the era against Dungeons and Dragons, a satanic panic. Before we get into that, I've, you mentioned Stephen Hilliard Stern, the director mm-hmm. of Mazes and Monsters. And I, I've got a hilarious side note on this. I don't know if you guys uh, picked this up or not, but the year before Mazes and Monsters, he directed the notoriously delayed Disney movie, The Devil and Max Devlin. Ah. Yes. Yes. With Bill Cosby and. Elliot Gould, for those of you who don't know, I knew these guys would know it. (laughs) (laughs) Disney used to have a Sunday uh, comic strip where they would actually release comics based on their films through like Gold Key and Whitman, I think. But they did like a comic adaptation of The Black Hole. And in the Sunday section, like the adaptation of that ran in newspapers for several months before the movie came out. And hilariously enough, they did the adaptations as well of The Watcher in the Woods, which got delayed for being too freaky. And then they did Devil and Max Devlin, which got delayed, and then they quit doing it. (laughs) 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 Because their movies were getting really weird. And Yeah, so that's like a great comic side note to it. Getting into the whole history thing, if you guys want to indulge me for a couple of minutes here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go take a piss. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the thing. Anything that happens like this with Mazes and Monsters or some of these other films that you guys have talked about i think listeners that grew up later that weren't necessarily teens or whatnot in the 80s they don't remember kind of like the satanic panic and uh, how long it lasted but it kind of touched on a whole bunch of different things and rolled a lot of stuff into it part of what i did was I, i tried to kind of put a timeline on it and what was really kind of interesting was what i kind of found was that the teaser for it was kind of in 1979 jerry falwell formed the moral majority to try to add all these like super conservative evangelical things to platforms their political action committee and a lot of people pushed them away but as i put it in my notes reagan let them in and there our troubles began in the fall of 1980 the moral majority spent millions on ads to paint jimmy carter as and i'm quoting carter a traitor to the South and no longer a Christian. And so they were running these ads against Carter. And then in in the midst of that, this book comes out called Michelle Remembers. Yes. That's like 80. And it was co-written by uh, Lawrence Pazder, who is a psychologist, and his wife, Michelle Smith. And this book was debunked later. But, you know, Michelle Smith told this like horrible upbringing of being brought up in satanic cults and the ritual abuse that she underwent and being forced to kill animals and witnessing child sacrifice and all this stuff. And it was all bullshit. Um, It was uh, later debunked completely. But when this book took off, Pazder and Smith become these huge talk show guests because of the explosion of talk shows in the 80s. These people are on TV all the time and they keep giving 
these unchallenged interviews. Like they're on Donahue, they make it to Oprah and stuff. And for years, when the McMartin trial happens later, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Pazder is an expert witness in that trial. He's got no background on this stuff, but he's made himself an expert on satanic ritual abuse because they basically made it up in the book. So that happened in, in 80. This case that the movie is based on that we're talking about happened in 81. James Dallas Egbert, who was a college student that went missing and people blamed it on the game, you know, on, on being a Dungeons and Dragons player. And this poor guy, he had all kinds of problems and would go through lots of disappearances, actually kill himself a couple of years later. And the, the PI that helped track him down the first time, he actually wrote a book to try to set the story straight. And the, but the book was called The Dungeon Master. So everybody thought, you know, that it was the true story of why Dungeons and Dragons caused him to do this. That was in 84. The same year that Maze of the Monsters came out, uh, Patricia Pulling in 1982 founded Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons because her son had committed suicide, she actually went so far as to sue his high school for allowing them to play D&D at high school and wrote a book called, wait for it, Colin, The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan? <laughs> and that's that 1989. So this lady's on talk shows. Michelle Smith's on talk shows. Then in 1983, the McMartin Preschool in California is at the center of this whole big accusation thing of like dozens and dozens of children come forward and accuse the family that runs it, of satanically abusing them and ritually molesting them in this basement. Well, the building was built on a slab. There was no basement. But so it's pizza those, accusations, those accusations happened in 83. The investigation went on from 84 to 87. The trial went from 87 to 90. No one was ever convicted of anything. But the grandson of the lady who ran the preschool actually spent five years in jail without ever being convicted because he was remanded through the entire trial. Now, this stuff was on the news every night. And I'm just giving you like a little tiny window because we can come back and drop some other stuff in later where appropriate. But when you look at kind of the narrowing of of news and let's say that you, you had CNN at this point, but, you know, MSNBC hadn't happened yet and all of that. So you really had CNN and your nightly news and these news programs and then all these talk shows were taken up with all this D&D, Satan heavy metal and all this stuff and parents were freaked out <laughs> and it's kind of hard to describe anything that comes close and I, I hate to put it in any kind of a modern context it's the same thing because there really isn't anything i can think of right now people are fairly nervous about school security and the nervousness you have about school security right now is probably not even a tenth of what this stuff was in the culture at the time and it's hard to explain that. You know, it's hard to get people to contextualize it. With this and other things that I took some notes on or that I recalled as I was going back to get ready, it was literally thing after thing after thing. Like every year of the 80s, right up into 1990 pretty much, had some big satanic case associated with it. And then books and talk show guests in support of it <laughs> to keep pushing it along. D&D was wrapped up in it. You know, it was it was D and D. It was metal. It was horror movies. It was basically anything parents didn't understand. That's right. Yeah, including Will Smith. No, <laughs> somehow Will Smith dodged the bullet. <laughs> Big D and D guy, that Will Smith. Well, they didn't mess with rap. It wasn't going to last. Remember? Oh yeah. That didn't happen until uh, oh, it was the very end of the '80s, like Two Live Crew and N.W.A. When white people got real freaked out, then they started stopped worrying about hair bands. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, they, they got something 
something else to get irrationally scared about. Yeah. Right, and then the alternative explosion effectively killed the hairbands, and so that was kind of over. It all kind of dissipated around 90, like as all the trials ended. The Judas Priest trial ended in 90, and the McMartin trial ended in 90, and like the music change, it was just like, it was like a decade shift, kind of like disco flaming out. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff would still exist, this idea, but like n- people less and less taking it seriously. There was uh, religious stuff, people uh, fearing Pokemon being a satanic thing. It's weird when you look at the world overall, because um, in Africa, there has been an ongoing vampire panic for several years. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. You know, if you guys want to go down a deep well, Google, like, African vampire panic 2000s. And sure. there's a lot of it. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And it, it does kind of echo some of the things, but... 80s were, I hate to dig into this too much, but, you know, there's a big kind of boom in the awareness of serial killers in the 80s. Yeah. It was loosely mm. defined, you know, before that. I mean, you had your, you know, your Richard Ramirez and stuff and, and, you know, obviously Manson and everything. But the more that it focused on it, a lot of that was put in the context of serial killers equal Satan worshipers. And there, one of, there was a book by a guy named Maury Terry called The Ultimate Evil that came out in 1987 that was specifically about that, how serial killers were part of a vast network of satanic ritual killers that they, that like Berkowitz, like Son of Sam and all these guys were actually working together. And you needed to check under your beds because by God, the satanic serial killers are going to get you. These books sold crazy amounts, crazy amounts. Like now the way that books sell, you can sell 10,000 books and get on the bestseller list. You know, those books were selling hundreds of thousands of copies and being sold in book clubs and being promoted on, like, Donahue. Well, what's what's so damn irritating about that, aside from the reckless fact-checking, is the book that this movie was based on was written literally in three days. Rhonda Jaffe, or however you pronounce her name, she wrote this book just so someone else wouldn't do it first. So she banged mm-hmm. it out in a weekend. Well, and there was the the book from the cop, the, the the detective on the case that knew it was all BS, but still wrote his book anyway to push the narrative against Dungeons and Dragons. So William Deere, and that that guy goes on to consult on like the OJ case and the Jean Benet Ramsey case, and he wrote books about every case he ever touched. the the tr- The shocking true story of the OJ case. So he was an opportunist from go you know mm-hmm. I mean, he was always attaching himself to these things there, there's another guy carl rashke who th- all throughout the 80s he he wrote books on uh, satanic ritual abuse metal and D and tied them all together like each book was about one is a main thing but they were all wrapped together and that guy was on talk show after news program after public engagement you know it was very much like the uh the wortham comic stuff of the 50s like these guys mm-hmm found their their niche as you could blame all of society's ills on it like you know right now it's kind of like the video game thing has come back yeah the 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 school shooting but uh, but you know it's it's a it's a rough equivalent what makes what makes me unable to understand my children satan you know yeah and and satan speaks to them through this game demons demons in the books I, I rewatched. Is it what was the the expose done on it? Sixty minutes or what, what was the the, the Dungeons twenty twenty the, the Dungeons and Dragons creators were grilled and and the guys like, well, don't you think if 
12 kids are dead and all 12 had that game that there's not some sort of like they're grilling them some sort of coincidence it's like what if all 12 also had cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast in the morning like you know like it's a harmless thing that's not you know that's that's not the underlying factor here it, and they're just grilled and then the D guys have come about and said that, you know we were this whole time kind of just behind closed doors snickering at all these crazy accusations and meanwhile our sales were going through the roof we had our biggest boom during the era where we were vilified one of the weird things like you said about the 80s was that well that was going on all these things that we're talking about D, metal records horror novels i mean that stuff all exploded when you talk about literature there everybody talks about the horror boom of the 80s i mean obviously mm-hmm. stephen king but like dean Koontz and stuff but the 80s gave us jason Voorhees, freddy krueger chucky um yeah chucky <laughs> the most iconic batch of of horror villains since the 30s came in the 80s it's insane yeah, and comics went real dark in the 80s, too. Like, uh, Brother Blood was introduced to the Teen Titans, you know? Mm-hmm. Based, really a very satanic cult leader. Was it when Denny O'Neill was in charge of Batman? Got yes. some really dark stuff out of that. John Constantine was the 80s. Like, everything yeah. that Alan Moore was doing, all the stuff that turned into Vertigo, Neil Gaiman, <laughs> all those guys were doing just incredibly crazy-ass horror stuff in England and then bringing it over here. And And I think, too, there's a... I don't know if this goes along with it. It might be, I might be thinking of this from the book The Monster Show by David Scull, where it's about the cultural history of horror movies. But the '80s were a big doomsday time. You know, you talk about like the day after nuclear mm-hmm. war and all that stuff. That was hanging over everything too. Like even a lot of like innocuous '80s songs, like "99 Red Balloons" and "Safety Dance," are all about nuclear Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's kind of funny. It's like. Well, that's maybe that's one reason kids ran to fantasy and horror stuff so hard because anything that was not like the real world was much better by comparison. And that's what we see right now with all the like the you know the success of Marvel and like the only like big tentpole fantasy kind of movies are making huge huge bucks. I know we went kind of far afield from mazes and monsters, but I feel like this context is really really important for people that weren't alive at the time. Mazes and monsters was another match on the keg of you know just all of these things that were happening because you got to figure too in 82 and this movie ran on cbs mm-hmm. which was one of the most watched networks this is the, dallas time this is tiffany at network yeah yeah the knots landing time like these are monolithic shows on cbs driving like their movies of the week and these things were viewed by millions of people yeah we don't conceptualize that in the same way because nobody watches the, the, the nobody understands the power of the sunday night movie back then like that was a big deal like sunday night you got something really well like something really well done original or you got like a big theater movie from a few years back that was making its television premiere i, I remember like the abc sunday movie james bond yeah and, you know, it was like I, I waited for that stuff man. Mm-hmm. like we like, there's another james bond movie coming on yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. That's what it was. It was like, oh crap, that's how you'd see some movies back then because access wasn't like it is now at all. It makes the monsters interestingly enough. I mean, like, well, I mean, we'll all be talking about Tom Hanks, but Hanks had been in Bosom Buddies. This was his dramatic arrival. <laughs> this and he knows you're alone. Ah. In the same year. Yes, yes, same year. In both of them, he acted better than the movies deserved. 
and then like very shortly after this was uh, Splash and Bachelor Party, and it, you know, taken off. You know, it's funny that the panic, like I said, I remember even. Like when I was when I was in like middle school or high school, I played like Magic cards, Magic the Gathering, or whatever, and that was still looked at weirdly by teachers and stuff at my school. And then even when I was in college and I worked at Circuit City, I think it was the first Harry Potter movie came out on DVD, and the the store played it as a demo at the front of the store on one of their fanciest TVs. And one of the guys I worked with, like this, he was like a bit older gentleman, and he came up to me, he goes, "Can you believe this?" I was like, "What?" He's like, "That they not only make." this kind of thing in the world but that they're forcing people to see it and the store i'm like you're not harry potter fan he's like hmm he's like witches and stuff that's not something funny or to celebrate i'm like what no i'm like it's fucking fiction man but like he was really upset and disturbed and scared that we were like channeling something in the store but yeah like that and that's got to be a hangover from that era that i'm sure exists still to this day and i mean in those small southern areas i teach at a school that is in a sort of rural area and it's kind of funny because there is a small town near the place i teach and if you go to like reddit and stuff the stories are lousy on the internet about this one church being a front for Satan worshipers and all this stuff and everything that happens in the woods and all that. And it is, it is crazy. It's one of those things that if you mention it to any of the kids are like, Oh, absolutely. I've heard about that. And you know, it's funny that the whole Satanism scare, if you look at like the church of Satan or whatever, the satanic religion, it, it's funny if, if you'd actually take if people take two seconds to research it. It's actually not religion. They're actually not praising or praying to the dark Lord. They're actually doing like good stuff in the world. Satanism, by being, Satanism was just founded really just to piss off like Christians. Yeah, the do opposite yeah, of what they do. The religion could be called fuck you, dad, really. It really is. That's what it is. That they're not they're not there to do that, which is really funny. Yeah, suing to get statues of Baphomet added to public displays. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the triumph the troll organization but in a good way the the non-nazi troll organization so yeah that's a that's a bit of the the panic of satanic of the, the the 80s and like i said you know your mileage may vary because i grew up in indiana which was like huge for this kind of stuff and you know it, it might have been different in like colorado or whatever depending on where you lived but definitely in the midwest you got way more than your fill Mm -hmm. of it (laughs) hi it's me again i personally read every one of these warranty cards when you purchase a flotation system from waterbed warehouse you receive a warranty card on that card we ask for comments about the sales and the service these are some of those comments here's a card from concord your staff in Sacramento is to be complimented on their courtesy. They really made us feel good, and we are going to recommend them to our friends. Thank you. Here's a card from Sacramento. Overall store atmosphere, the best of all the stores I shopped in. Best style and selection. Here's another card. Your salespeople were extremely courteous and helpful, not pushy like some other places. I'd even do a TV commercial for you. I can go on and on. I want you to know these and all warranty cards are on file at our showroom. Now, back to the movie. Mazes and Monsters, the film begins 
during a crime scene stocked full of tons of ambulances, fire trucks, cop cars at these caverns where a detective and a reporter discuss a game of mazes and monsters getting out of hand. And the reporter goes on the air and talks about the disappearance of a student. The victim of a seemingly innocent game, Mazes and Monsters. Now, Mazes and Monsters is a fantasy role-playing game in which the players create an imaginary character. These characters are then plunged into a fantasy world of invented terrors. The point of the game is to amass a fortune without being killed. It's kind of a psychodrama, you might say, where these people deal with problems in their lives by acting them out. But in this case, there might be a loss of distinction between reality and fantasy and possibly the loss of life in the process. So that's your hook to be like, oh, the dangers. We get the credits play, and we get a song that could have been any theme song for any given show in the first half of the 80s, right? Oh, that, oh yeah. This is one of my funny memories. I remember that there was a song at the beginning of the movie. I remember that there was like a female singer singing like this slow song. And I know it wasn't the same song, but you know how sometimes things wire together in your memories? It sounds like the song from Octopussy, to be honest. It sounds like the song from John Woo's The Killer. Oh, shit, yeah. Over and over. And that's like, that song keeps like going through my head when I, you know, that lady starts singing to them like, okay, this is what the song sounded like. Because whenever I thought of that, I've always thought of like, it's this loozy late night karaoke lounge woman singing that. I mean, it could have been a sitcoms theme song from when they Mm -hmm. did. I mean, it was, it fit anything. It's like they said, like, we need a a song that make it sound like the bionic woman, but uh, shitty. <laughs> I got an idea. Be, it could be a sad scene from uh, from Arthur Dudley Moore walking down the street. To be honest, there was probably like box full of demos, and they grabbed. They went, "We need a sad song for this movie," and they just grabbed one and threw it on there. I mean, it probably the case, but uh, we we get a, a card that says it's six months earlier, and we meet J.J. Brockway, who always wears these goddamn hats. We'll talk about it, and his bird. That says birds don't talk, and he goes to his big city New York home, where his elitist mother has rearranged his room to look like the end of 2001: A Space Odyssey. It is devoid of color, which, by the way, that's illegal. That <laughs> they used to try to, you know, have prisoners in, in rooms where there'd be no color, and it would drive them mad. So eventually, that became illegal. I don't know if it was illegal at the time, but basically, she's treating her son like a prisoner. <laughs> we then meet Kate who's talking to her mom about her dad's new girlfriend and has a conversation about how she can't be herself around guys at school because she's so smart. She also drops that she's a writer in this portion, just throwaway line. And then we meet Daniel, who's with his uppity parents, as he tells them he'd like to pursue a, a career in computer games. And they scoff at him about it and push him to be a computer expert from MIT and that the games are a hobby to let other people do that. And the world is just too competitive. And we then go to the college where JJ in another goddamn stupid hat runs into Kate asking about Daniel and they discuss needing a fourth player who we then meet is Robbie and he's got a no-nonsense father and an alcoholic mother who bicker and fight. And you've had too much to drink again. Threats and accusations, that's all you know. I should have driven Robbie up myself. Oh, you should. Well, may I remind you whether you like it or not, we are still a family. I hate it when you drink. I drink to get through the day. I was a talented, 
well-educated oh, woman. Cat, please, let's not start that again. It's getting very thin. Well, I could have been someone. All my life, it's been what you wanted. Not ever what I wanted. Nice but way asked me for what Robbie I wanted. to start a new school. Yeah, this is it. You better make this right. He gets dropped off at school. It's, and It's a it, conversation, yeah, on his way to school. He can't get out of the car. So I drink. <laughs> to get away from you is that what she's oh yeah my God. no she said like i drink to like because i you know it could have been something else it's her saying that it was a mistake to be with you well okay son let's get you to school yeah and they drop him off this is his second school apparently he had got left the other school because he had something to do with mazes and monsters got him removed and his parents he promised his parents he's not gonna play again and those are our four characters here we've all met and my, um, this movie's going to blame mazes and monsters, but there's a, a, a probably an unintentional theme of horrible parents, all of them, and all broken families, all broken families. JJ's dad's nowhere to be found. Kate's father is nowhere to be found. Robbie's parents might as well be divorced. It's like just fucking horrible. And then Daniel's are just assholes that don't treat him as a human and kate she you know she talks about her father and it's not that that he got a divorce from her her mother he left them he just straight up about she says i think she says abandon them doesn't she whatever you know she says she's like he's gone it's a weird scene you know it's it's kind of a typical you know introduction setup it's kind of funny because you know you're introducing the party right i mean you Mm -hmm. think of going around and establishing the four main characters but it, it it gives like a snapshot of all their neuroses. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, they, they want, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. Brandon mentioned the terrible parenting, but it's like, they're trying to explain like these, these kids are damaged. So they're drawn to this game, which sucks in damaged souls. Wasn't it like at the beginning, the, um, the reporter said that this game is used to work through like, like their problems or something like that. Right. I believe he says that. Yeah. It's just, more of that. Well, it's funny is like JJ here. He's he's pissed about his mom like messing up his room, always redecorating. He's obsessed with creating maps and new territories for the Mazes and Monsters game, which is essentially he's obsessed with redecorating rooms and changing things and making areas, just like his mother. Like, yeah, that's right there. And Except his mother doesn't wear. A, a, I guess you'd call it a Kaiser helmet. As soon as we meet him, that's how we're introduced to the character. Is that the stupidest hat? Is that the stupidest hat we see him wear? I'm not that's sure. The, that's the most, I mean, he wears some impractical hats, but that's probably the most impractical one. Absolutely. <laughs> At least ex- make it look, make it fit with the outfit. He almost never does it. He always looks like an asshole. <laughs> I hate to be too down on Chris Makepeace, but I'll do it. But, you know, here's here's a guy. He, he he was having like an interesting career at this point because he was in Meatballs and My Bodyguard, and I think he's kind of really bad in this movie, um, especially next to Tom Hanks. Like he's, you know, I don't know what your guys take on it, but he seems like he comes off like the worst actor of the four as a guy who was very good in a couple of other things, like just before this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like you said, he's next to Tom Hanks, and 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 Tom Hanks, he he acts so much better in this movie than he has any than this movie deserved. It's ridiculous. There's one scene in particular we'll, we'll point out when we get to it, but it is there was a part of it is like I'm a little bit moved, and I hate that I'm moved emotionally at mm-hmm. mazes and monsters at all there's a there's a couple moments in this movie where tom hanks just isn't 
I mean, he, he's never done. I mean, this is his first big gig, but it, it doesn't really hold very well. But for the most part, Tom Hanks is very good. There's uh, there's a couple over demanding moments of him that he doesn't. He's not able to pull off. But for the most part, I didn't. I didn't think all the kids like. I thought Kate was fine, and JJ just. I don't know if it was the hats that were just so distracting for me. It didn't help. <laughs> and then okay, so we got Daniel's parents who were just those. You gotta do that. You know, this is why. We're at where we're, we're, yeah. these are the parents that and the get us the the '90s attitude of screw that, follow your dreams. Who cares? Don't be the boring office guy. Comes from these kind of parents. Yeah, the pissed off hippies that didn't succeed. They're like, well, I should have got a damn office job, and are trying to push that on their you know dreaming children, mm-hmm. which they should let them discover shit for themselves. But that's where this comes from. Did you notice uh, another theme with the parents? Uh, they're all rich. Like every one of them, that they have nice house, uh, they have nice Kate, cars. We don't know unless Kate's mom was living on some boathouse. Like they're well, just out of the, dock. The, well, that's what I'm like. They were at a pier with mm-hmm. you know, with boats, you know, and they're not just hanging out there. I think that was like actually like I don't know. The mom had a boat or, or whatever. That's what it. It's what it felt like to me. And people that are not well off, you know, they they don't have boats. So that makes me uh, another thing. It's like, well, you know, they all come from money, and it just felt like another layer of you should be scared. See, these people that have their lives together, this happened to their children. It could happen to you too. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's like the other side of the 80s. We've been talking all about the satanic panic stuff and everything, but, you know, very much the greed, for the lack of a better word, is good, 80s, is going on. And all these shows, like shows we already mentioned, like Dallas and stuff, they're all about fabulously rich people. This was the same year that Dynasty was on. Dynasty was on like 81, 82. So it was, you know, all these shows that were like mega rich people well yeah there was lifestyles of the rich and famous that yeah lifestyles of the rich 80s. and famous yeah. to come and then we were about five years from the muscular powerful american re- renaissance of like stallone and and schwarzenegger van damme seagal like the you know big hulking guys and, and even rocky would become rich and famous on a big estate in rocky three like that was who we looked up to at the time well you know you did have an intersection of the whole uh satan and money thing with the omen three yeah. What happens if a really rich and powerful person from the 80s becomes president because of the... Oh, wait, never mind. Let's keep going. <laughs> we we get to the library where Robbie checks out JJ's ad for Mazes of Monsters needing another player, and he's there wearing another dumb fucking hat. He's dressed like a World War II flying ace. Just, just... He wears all these fucking hats, and not one of them is like a knight helmet or a crown <laughs> yeah, or anything right. to do with fantasy. He's got a cowboy hat on at one point. Several points he wears a cowboy hat. Moving day, cowboy <sighs> hat. He tries to get Robbie to play, but Robbie tells him he doesn't play anymore, and J.J. still invites him to his party that night. So then J.J. at the party in a what, goddamn it, construction hat. He's wearing oh. he's wearing a tuxedo, yeah, with a construction worker hat on. Hey, asshole, how about, how about a top hat to go with your tuxedo? Come on, jackass. <laughs> Robbie shows up at the party with a bottle of wine and runs into JJ. I like to point out that he brings a bottle of wine to someone who is 16 years old throwing this party. JJ is like a prodigy, I guess. Well, we find that. Hold on, we will, we haven't found that out yet. That comes as a fucking shock to me later on. So I know, but just that he brings a bottle of wine to a sixteen-year-old's party. Yeah. Well, he doesn't know yet. That's what rich people do, Colin. You go to the college party with your bottle of wine because yeah, that's the way that dad would have done it. That's what college <laughs> students love to drink. 
wine. <laughs> Robbie runs into Kate, who he tells she's very beautiful. He tells her, and Robbie then you know says he got kicked out of school for playing mazes and monsters too much, and she gets excited and asks him what level he was. So like Cullen, he's a level nine, and she says she's a level nine. Introduces him to Daniel, and they pressure him into, and he eventually agrees to play mazes and monsters with them. Which JJ shows up, he's like, "You didn't tell me you were level nine. He's like, "I told you I don't play." Like. <laughs> It is terribly irresponsible of these people to get him to play a game. He said to Katie, hey, I was in this other school, but then uh, my grades were so bad that I got kicked out because I played this game. And then they immediately try to get him to play that game. They're like, we only play two days a week. And then Tom Hanks should have looked at him and been like, that's how it starts. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like someone saying, I lost my job because I drink too much. And then it's like, oh, you uh, you like to drink? You should join our wine club. We drink like two, three times a week. You have to do it. <laughs> that whole scene is just really weird. It's shot like in a really claustrophobic way. It's Well, I mean, it's actually shot pretty well for what's happening as they're kind of closing in on him. You know, like the, there's that party, like everyone else is circling kind of around them, you know, and they're kind of in that corner having that conversation. And it's very compressed. And like, it, it's almost like the, they're trying to visually communicate that pressure that Robbie is under in that scene. I think that was kind of an interesting move for them to go with. They could have shot that any other way, but like, it, it's very tight. And even when they show the four of them in the shot, it's still really, you know, the composition is still really Tied well, on them. And also, Robbie is new to this school, and these are the only people that have come up to him to try to make any connection with them. So that's, that is another reason why it makes some kind of sense he gets involved with them. That and bullying, but, you know, so whatever. They play the game, which consists of them in a dark room with a fuckload of candles. It probably took them longer to light and set all those candles <laughs> than it did to play the game. I, I couldn't get a real good sense. What, what hat is J.J. wearing in this scene, Brandon? Stupid hat. <laughs> I think it's a minor helmet. I think that's what he's wearing. I think he is. You uh, know, one of those comfortable minor helmets that you just love to sit around the living room and wear. I, I saw him bringing his bags to move into his dorm at school. I didn't see enough room for this shit. Like, what? <laughs> Maybe he had a storage locker. Maybe he paid like the... And how come he doesn't have a hat for his bird? Huh? Ooh. That's a good question. Should at least have a hood, like a falcon hood. JJ's room has to be like 30% hat. Robbie runs into Kate at the library one day, and we get a, it's followed by a montage set to the theme song of the movie, which shows us Robbie and Kate doing stuff and playing the game and falling in love. I know this montage is supposed to be, oh, they're building a relationship and, you know, love and all that stuff. But to me, uh, it, it felt like like Tom Hanks' character, Robbie, was just, re- like, overcoming a trauma and, like, rebuilding his life. Like, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the music cue is wrong, but they only have one song. But but that's what it, it felt like because it shows, you know, him with uh, with Kate. And, you know, they're obviously doing stuff and getting to know each other. But he's also with uh, Daniel and JJ playing the game. And it looks like he's overcome his addiction is what it or looks it's like. His, or the music would tell me he's these are his last days before the big thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a, you know, however, you know, a few weeks of joy before the darkness comes. Absolutely. That's what it's, that's what it is. Robbie tells Kate 
one night of... I have an older brother. His name's Hall. Hall Jr. And about three years ago on his birthday, his Halloween night, my mother was through this big party for him. And in the middle of it, when nobody was paying attention, he ran away. You're kidding. Mm. We never got a letter, postcard, phone call, nothing. Like he disappeared right off the face of the earth. And I've always wondered what it was that happened to him. It must be terrible. Well, actually, not knowing is the worst part. Robbie, I'm so sorry. That night he came up into my room and woke me up and said that he needed all of my money so that he could go to New York. And I gave it to him and he told me that he would keep in touch, but he never did. Sometimes I wonder if I hadn't given him the money, he I don't know. And Robbie then says he dreams about him a lot, and then we instantly get a scene of him having a nightmare about it. <laughs> this was the scene that actually kind of uh, moved me more than I wanted it to. No, it's really well done. It's, it, it's well done. It is surprisingly moving, and it's actually shot kind of well too it's like i i got upset at the movie for a moment I was like damn it mazes and monsters you're you're propaganda you're not supposed to move me you jerk and, and this is one of the the ways it's kind of interestingly it touches on the real case a little bit because you know that the guy that did disappear they thought he was in the steam tunnels and he'd actually taken off and was staying in other houses like other people's places and moving from place to place like for weeks you know, until the pi caught up with him and that the the disappearance of Hall makes me think of kind of the same thing. I wonder if that thread was kind of written in the movie, kind of like as a you know almost as a hat tip to the the actual story. You know that this kid disappeared and nobody knew what the hell happened. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about these kids playing this game. Let's not talk about the underlying stuff. Let's just blame the game. And all their parents are awful. <laughs> we then get Daniel and JJ, who's wearing a fedora, which is. Probably the most forgivable hat he wears in the whole movie. It's like, I'll take the fedora, I guess. Was, is, I mean, this, is this the fedora with the feathers coming off the side? I don't remember. I, I just remember going, oh, guy, he makes a fedora be like normal. <laughs> uh, so they, they paint figurines for the game and have a discussion with each other. And basically it turns out the discussion is, I want to make movies. I want to not be seen as a meathead. That's pretty much discussion they have. Yeah. And they then talk about when they want to play the game next. Uh, JJ wants to play tonight. Daniel says tomorrow. So JJ goes to Kate's to ask if when they want to play, and Robbie answers her door, and he says, can they play tomorrow? And Robbie says, uh, he and Kate are busy, and he can't till Wednesday. So guess what? I think it's Monday, guys. I'm pretty smart, right? Uh, they haven't played in three days and jj's got an itch and jj leaves disappointed and kate comes out and they have a discussion about jj being lonely because he's 16 and a (laughs) sophomore that was first i was like oh okay i still hate his hats and um (laughs) did you feel something like vicious or like deceitful in this scene and the way like Hanks and him at the door, like, oh, is he lying about something? Like, it didn't... F- and then she comes out, she's like, who was that? Was that JJ? Like, one of those lying scenes in a movie? Yeah. Where, like, Tom Hanks is up to something, but it, that's really not the case? No, it, it isn't. And, the like, JJ acts... Like, the when he answers the door and Robbie is there, JJ acts like, oh, someone else is with this girl I like. That's yeah. how he acts. And it's not... That's not, it's not that the way case. at all. No, no. not at all. And, and and it feels like it feels like when Kate comes out of the shower, she's gonna be like, "Who is that?" And Tom Hanks would be like, "Oh, someone got the wrong door," you know. But 
It's not. It's like it's an innocent scene played so like dark and just it's yeah, it's not needlessly what it is. sinister. Yes, yes. Thank you. That could be another name for the movie, needlessly sinister. JJ goes to talk to his bird about being all alone in the world. And you know, it's funny, every like these scenes stack together like, you know, we had the oh I, I have nightmares about my brother, cut to having nightmares about his brother. Oh, J JJ's such a lonely kid. Cut to JJ talking to his bird about being alone. He also talks about smashing his dirt bike into a school or or com- committing suicide. And he says, I want them to remember J.J. Brockway. I'm like, holy shit, where's this movie going? But- yeah, like, we've seen the movie, so we know, know what happens. But up to this point, when you're watching it, you're thinking, well, J.J. is the one that's going to snap, right? Because he wears the stupid hats. He is... And he's obsessed with the game. He's obsessed with the game. He is only... Well... I shouldn't say his only friend, but the only thing that he thinks he can talk to is his bird. He talks about committing suicide, and he's this 16-year-old kid in college who doesn't feel like, probably doesn't feel like he fits in. But you know what's funny? In a contradictory move to what this movie's trying to tell us, he's like, I'm going to ride my bike into the school, which would damage something, hurt somebody, or commit suicide, which is hurtful to himself. He says, you know what? Instead... I'm going to try to make up my game, like create a cool level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the cavern by the school and make a map, and that'd be fun, well, which is about, something well, productive and healthy to do <laughs> instead of committing suicide or crashing a dirt bike into the school. Well, he well also the bird talk- really helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Merlin's got some real great ideas. Uh, <laughs> that's the bird's name, by the way. We haven't mentioned yeah. that, but not just an old wizard that lives in his room. JJ, he even... He, when he talks about suicide, he talks about committing suicide in the caverns as well. Right. Robbie shows Kate a double bed in his room and says that they can live together. And she goes, no, it's too soon. But she assures him they have lots of time and not to rush. And then Robbie then scouts out the caverns. The next time they play, JJ purposely sabotages the game in order to propose they play a new game in the caverns. And Daniel and Kate are hesitant about it, but Robbie is kind of for it. And they eventually agree to it. And then... J.J. borrows a skeleton named Basil from a lab at school, and that night they all cosplay and head to the caverns where J.J. has the game set, and they wander through playing the game with J.J. marking spots with rice as to know where they are going, and with lanterns, they wander through J.J.'s games. This is basically LARPing, pretty much what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and... uh, during this, Robbie has a hallucination of a monster in the caverns, and he freaks out and stabs it with his little sword, and they didn't discuss the game outside as they are leaving, and JJ says he didn't have time to do some paper mache monsters. Well, I was going to build some monsters out of paper mache and stuff. Oh, no, that would have ruined it. Yeah? Yes. The most frightening monsters are the ones that exist in our minds. Which, that, that shot was in all the commercials. And it zooms in on, on Kate that says it like, it, she does everything short of looking into the camera and holding up a sign saying, you should be scared at this, parents. And they drop Robbie off at home, and he seems to still be in character as he says, bless you all. And Daniel, Daniel and JJ just blow him off, but Kate shows some concern here. Robbie has a dream that night where he, as Pardue, his first name is Gerard uh, but... Uh, <laughs> He's given a quest from a higher being telling him how to get to a higher level. It tells him to come to the two towers and be one with the Great Hall. Kate comes to see him the next day and tries to get frisky with him, but Robbie then dumps her. He says, I love you and I always will. I just can't touch you anymore. She's quite upset, but doesn't realize 
It's him being in character. Well, his dream told him to be a holy man. He needs to be more well, holy. He's celibate, yeah. He needs to be celibate, yeah. It's in character, but she, but, you know, she doesn't know yet. Well, and she also says, like, like it's just like last time. Like, wait a minute, this, this happened before. Like, Did she date else... player number four last time? And <laughs> yeah, if maybe... so, they're even worse as a group. Uh. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's doing something to these guys that we're not seeing because he, Robbie, was perfectly fine up until she said, "Hey, uh, we shouldn't live together." And he's like, well, he's disappointed, but okay. And then the next scene, we see him, and he's he's freaking out (laughs) because he thinks he killed a monster. Like, what? Like, I've been turned down before, but my God, that's way, that's really extreme. I'm sorry. Why is is Cullen over there stabbing the bar? (laughs) He got turned down. Oh, I get it. Sure. Kate has dinner with Daniel to discuss Robbie and wonders why every male in her life walks out on her. Daniel calls her the most perceptive girl he knows. She asks him if he thinks Robbie hasn't let go of his character, to which he thinks everyone leaves their problems with their game. Like, maybe you should listen to Kate. They they also flirt a little, and Robbie, Robbie then has drawn some map, and during a dream is charged with finding the sacred city under the earth, and that night Kate goes looking, this is a, I mean, Kate goes looking for Daniel in the caverns, and she gets lost. She eventually finds him, and he tells her he was cheating to find where the treasure was, and she says it's just a game, and that, that he wouldn't cheat with important things in life, and he tells her it's become a lot more, the game has become a lot more, and they kiss, he tells her, you know, I, I was always like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. I thought I had no feelings like a Vulcan. I never thought I could fall in love. You're not like Mr. Spock at all. You're like the, uh, the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, who thought he had no heart, and all along he had the biggest heart of all. You know... I was always afraid to get involved with you because you were so attractive. Yeah, when he said that he felt like Mr. Spock, I immediately thought, "Fuck you, dude." <laughs> he is a he's a He looks like he's like he's like the poor man's Jefferson from Married with Children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like he's yeah, he's a very handsome man. He's, you know, nice. I mean, he's not charismatic, but he's not like bland or anything like that. He can certainly Well, we know, keep have... getting this idea that this guy is just this all the women are all over him and and like he's just this man of campus and he's so popular. We never see him with anybody. He's like by himself or with JJ playing yeah. the game. He's like, man, it's so hard to just be looked at like this. It's like, who is looking at you like this? Apparently Daniel's future is limitless because you know, early Early in the movie, you know, when he's having the argument with his parents in their gorgeous house, you know, they say, you know, like, oh, we want you to, you know, basically tell them to, they want him to go to MIT to get a computer science degree. And he's like, oh, I want to make uh, video games. I want to tell stories that way. Like, guess what? Either option is a fucking dream. And me- meanwhile, he- he's handsome and he sleeps with women all the time, apparently. Although, like you said, Brandon, we never see him talk to anyone other than our main characters this is a really common enough 80s thing maybe it's a tv movie budget or so forth but the only characters in the school are the characters that we're following one one of the things that i appreciate like about you know for example revenge of the nerds and real genius and so forth we're, we're following kids at a college but there's tons of other kids you know revenge of the nerds goes out of the way to show you that there's lots of other fraternities and sororities 
mm-hmm. that you know the alpha betas are just in particular assholes. <laughs> and then, um, like Real Genius, you get the sense that it's taking place on a campus, and there's even a neighboring neighboring campus with the uh, beauticians. Like this could just take place like in a yeah this this could just take place like in a city because there are other people around but no one ever interacts with them. You know you know what it is. It's like every episode of Friends where they throw a party, there's a bunch of people there, and none of the main characters interact with any of the other people in it. We have one side character. We have the guy from the lab that gives him the skeleton. He shows up for no reason later on for like two lines. I don't even remember him later. The party's filled with tons of people, and nobody talks to the other four. Any uh, birthday party for Bridget Bardot is going to be a rager. Because that's what it is. There's 60 more evidence that JJ should be the one going crazy in this movie. There's a party for Bridget Bardot. Oh, my God. She going to be there? Oh, maybe I should invite her next. <laughs> Everyone in this movie has mental problems. Yeah, that's an incredibly strange digression, which, which leads me back to Rona Jaffe for a minute. Does she think this is how college students talk? <laughs> <laughs> like, because you know, she's she's essentially ascribing all of this behavior to, hey, wouldn't it be great if this one character always wore crazy hats? <laughs> at, a, at a Halloween party, as the bird tells us, JJ's throwing one where he's not wearing a hat, and he tells the cameraman, hey, welcome to the party. And Robbie's there, because I thought it was like, we're in the point of view of Robbie. Yeah. I don't know whose point of view this was. But, yeah, I I don't know. Because Robbie's already at the party when we, because the camera sh- shows him, and it shows Kate and Daniel, like, kissing each other, like, oh, they're still together. But Robbie's there, like, in character, and then the guy from the science lab shows up dressed like Frankenstein's monster. Robbie eerily leaves the party that night, and a voice tells him he is ready and will know how to find him. But JJ's not wearing a hat. Yeah, that's the important thing. <laughs> the the one scene where it would have been like, oh, great, it makes sense he's wearing a hat. Uh, hats happen a lot during Halloween, but I, I guess he wanted to stand out. He's thinking people won't recognize him if he's not wearing a hat. So that's <laughs> Our leads here, they're, they're role players, and they cosplayed or live-action role-played a scene earlier where they all dressed up pretty creatively as their characters look, look solid for you know budget items, have the lamest Halloween costumes. Well, yeah. Like, look at fucking Daniel's in like a ship captain. I don't know what Kate was, and JJ's in another like suit. Well, no, he actually says who he was. I don't. And I, don't I didn't give a shit. I watched it twice, and I missed. I was like, "What do you say?" I don't care. I don't care. He's he's not wearing a hat. That's all that matters. He looks like less of an asshole now. I go back to like having a hard time connecting with JJ, and he just gets weirder. As the you know the, the the more you find out about him the sixteen year old thing and it, like I said it, it having not seen it a long time ago going back and watching it I was like really kind of disappointed make peace <laughs> right yeah. Noel Howard that's who JJ is dressed as like a Playboy looking outfit is what he chose to wear whatever hmm. fuck JJ the next day Daniel goes to Robbie's room and finds he's not there. And the, my favorite part of this scene was he asked some guy in the hall about this random guy in the hall about, you know, where's, where's Robbie? And, and I, the thing I love about this, this guy, it looks like they went to film the scene and realized they hadn't casted the part or didn't have the line, someone to read the line. So they asked this guy who was like an extra, Hey, can you just say this? And the guy was like, 
the whole time, so excited, but also telling himself, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up, don't fuck... <laughs> like, you can see him timing it, making a calculated turn, and then just delivering the line, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, Robbie hasn't been here since last night. And then he, like, kind of looks at the camera like, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to rewind it, like, three times. This guy was so adorable. Hey, have you guys seen Robbie? Not since last night. Thanks. Uh, also, um, why is there a refrigerator in the hallway, guys? <laughs> there's, just, there's just, it's just sitting there. Like this is like a, like a dorm, right? Yep. I mean, yeah. That, that's what mm-hmm. my understanding is. Why is there a refrigerator in the hallway? It's college of the '70s, '80s. Like crazy stuff happened, right? So I'm just like, that's probably like normal. And it was probably there all year. And people came up with stories. Like someone drew a penis on it later in the year. Like you know, it's, the, you know, that fridge from freshman year. Why is there a fridge with the penis on it? And you know, an abandoned refrigerator in a hallway in a dormitory. There's no way there, that thing isn't just full of piss, shit, or puke. Yeah, someone came home one night and like opened it up and peed in it, and then <laughs> laughed and went to their dorm. And then, and then, and then, the, then the maintenance guy came in. And was like, "We got your new fridge. It's been in the hall for a couple of days. Sorry." And and I just want uh, people to understand this. This isn't like a dorm room fridge where it's like you know two three feet tall it's a full-sized fucking fridge in the hallway what if they like because they'd use the hallway for a scene earlier in the movie they're like how can we differentiate this from the other hallway and even though college hallways all look the same they're like just throw that fridge prop in there there we go we want people to know it's november now what says november more than a fridge in a hallway (laughs) and by the way like i said it's november all this shit has happened since what? What August? That's well, a, yeah, that's a tight well, because time was, for him to lose his mind. It said six months earlier. Wait, hold on. Yeah, so wait, because remember at the beginning it said like six months earlier, right? Sure, six months. November's earlier. the eleventh early, so that would have meant May. But college uh, doesn't start in May. Unless we, we saw just a little insight to the kids in May, and then we zoomed to August uh, for moving I, in? I guess because at the beginning of the movie, it's J.J. going home. So it seems like he's just coming home from college. Okay. Right? That, I could buy that. But if that's the case, why did we jump back six months? It didn't seem like we need to go <laughs> back that far. It was a big day in our our three characters' lives with their parents, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Okay, so the three friends discuss that he's not been at class and wonder where he could be without his clothes or his wallet. They act like he left naked. Like, no. Yeah. The shower? Maybe he would try the shower. Yeah. Kate then calls Robbie's mom, who is having a drink (laughs) when she picks up the phone. And his mom says that he's at school. And she tells him he skipped class and hasn't been around and then freaks out and hangs up on her. To which Robbie's mom does nothing Uh, after that. Like, huh. And also, JJ, still not wearing a hat. They all go to his room and search around. And Daniel finding the two towers map. That was sitting there. You go. Then their first inkling was, "Do you think Robbie was involved in another game?" (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're all like, "Was he seeing someone else?" JJ suggests, "You know, maybe he was hitchhiking and got picked up by some maniac. You know, like that freeway killer in California." JJ, Robbie wouldn't hitchhike, and where would he be going anyway? It just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) This exchange just—I was like, "What? What? Like, what?" He's trying to abandon you, Kate, because they all abandoned you. Like, how do you know he wouldn't? How do you know he wouldn't hitchhike? 
Like, what, did he have like some story he never we never saw? Where he's like, yeah. And then one day I hitchhiked. Said never again. And like, where would he go? People can go anywhere. And also, she knows that he, Robbie, has not been terribly mentally stable recently. So who's to say what the hell he would do? Or remember that night he confessed his brother took all his money to go to New York. Hmm. <laughs> Nah, Robbie couldn't be going to New York. Whatever. Two towers? Whatever. Oh, God, we'll get to that. I think that the film kind of, by this point, has a really weird view of Kate. You know, between the the relationship switch and so forth, then it it doesn't kind of know how to play her at this point. The conversational reactions, like you said, with Robbie's mom seem kind of... I don't want to say over the top, but they seem not quite in line with what we've seen from the character to this point. Well, Kate would seemingly have the most to offer about insights to how they could find Robbie, and she gives nothing. Well, I didn't really know him that well. (laughs) Kate then tells them uh, he's flipped and is in the game. And they go off to the caverns to see if he's there. After no luck, they go to the police, but hide the mazes and monsters aspect out of it. They say he was really into caves outside of town. (laughs) Really into those caves, man. And then a detective questions JJ in his room, which Warner Brothers is doing their own product placement by putting the Blade Runner poster up in his room. That's what I I thought, too. I was like, why is he got... Oh, and I was like, yep, Warner Brothers. That badass Blade Runner poster in his room. Like, it kind of reminded me of... Like Stranger Things, because the older brother—I don't remember his name right now—but he's got like posters of of like the Thing and Evil Dead and all this other stuff that no one had posters of. But yeah, he has like the Blade Runner poster up on the wall, and there's like part of me that thinks like that's bullshit. Another part of me thought like, well, at least it's like of the time, so it's a it's little time, more believable. It makes sense from an outside of this movie aspect that it was a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're both Warner Brothers movies, so they're using their own stuff, and that was like their big movie. That was probably maybe still in theaters at the time because movies lasted back then. Since Blade Runner didn't make a lot of money, they were probably trying to milk it in theaters as long as they could. Get, the, um, get those mazes and monsters fans in to see Blade right. Runner. Uh, the detective brings up uh, mazes and monsters, and Jay's just like, oh, I, I used to play it. Detective has had... Uh, Word that kids were playing mazes and monsters in the cave. And he then has a fascination with the bird for a second. He's like, does he bite? The detective moves on to Kate, who tells him the game was becoming his whole life, which she denies playing with him and says she doesn't know who he was playing with or how dangerous it could be. And he goes, probably a doper. (laughs) Like, hey, fellow kids. Like, oh, my God. Tell me what Robbie has had. Move on to Daniel, and the detective tries to play the love triangle angle with him. I just said angle, angle really fast together. That's that's fun. Um, the detective says he thinks one of the players he played with killed him. That's and a he's big like, leap. And, and then you know, Robbie goes, well, that's kind of far out. Mazes and monsters is a far out game. Please tell me, Troy, that was like in the commercials. It would have to be, right? I like, don't remember that one. I remember, the things I remember particularly for the commercial were the most frightening monsters are the ones in our minds, and there's blood on my knife. Oh, oh yeah. Daniel then says, hey, it's all imagination. And the detective goes, is it? <laughs> like, oh, sh-. this is the point where the parents want their kids at home to be, like, shaken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, when he says, like, almost every line that he says, th- th- this police officer, who, by the way, is wearing a trench coat, and, you know, just the most stereotypical uh, right. police officer, like almost every line after, 
you almost expect him like to take a drag of his cigarette afterwards. Is it? And just, like, uh, for blow, real. <laughs> like blow the smoke in the person's face. The three then get together and argue about if they what they're doing right by withholding evidence and information from the police. So they decide to give the map of the caverns to the cops. And we get back to the scene of the beginning of the movie. Now we see JJ, who somehow knows what car the detective drives and leaves the map under his windshield. So, uh, Brandon, I'd like to point out that this is two movies in a row that we've had where the beginning of the movie is just somewhere in the middle of the movie as well. This is true. That made no sense. The only reason they put that shit at the beginning of the movie is just to get the hook of, like, death is imminent. There's all the, you know, scare, scare, scare. And then now we got to go through our character development and this shit really doesn't get burning till like, you know, an hour into the movie. But here's your scare. In this particular case, it's really like agenda advancing the the setup because it could have it could have been arranged in any number of ways. Just starting with the kid, you know, because that's a conventional enough introduction to a movie. Here's a character. And being scared. JJ, he wears crazy hats. (laughs) He's an asshole. Uh because they're setting that agenda because that whole conversation between the police and the reporter is just, you know, Nays of the Monsters, my kids play that game. He steps up with that screed ready to go. I mean, he you don't see him making any notes or anything. He goes right into the, did the game do this? Well, it's funny the kids are afraid this is supposed to be like the first instance of Dungeons and Dragons being a problem, yet the kids are afraid to talk about it. So like, which is it? Is this like it amidst this panic or is this supposed to be the origin story of the panic? Because I thought it was supposed to be like the origin story of, oh, this could happen to you. But now there seems to be a danger about this game that is never present amongst these kids to talk about or anything until this point. And now it's taboo. Like, there should have been some sort of, more than the opening scene, some sort of taboo thing with the kids as to why they have to hide when they're, we never get the idea they're hiding when they're playing a game. They're just playing in a room. And the caverns is because the caverns, it's illegal to trespass on that property at night and be in there unsupervised doing that stuff. It's never about the game being dangerous until right now. So why would the kids, their their fear of telling people about the game is pretty unfounded. Well, it, it, it probably doesn't help that the um, detective says, I think one of the other players killed Robbie. Yes. That would immediately make them suspects. Right, but they haven't come forth with that anyway. They, right. they could easily clear themselves by not withholding that. Yeah, and I think one of the things canonically that the, it started drawing attention was when, the, you know, as the books started to be carrying in other stores, the, the D&D rule books, the um, mm-hmm. uh, hardbacks and so forth, mm-hmm. with the um, monster manual and everything they had in them, like they categorized like all the dukes of hell and everything. And so you had Asmodel and Beelzebub and all these characters as opponents that were possible in the game. And I think as people started to find out about that, it propagated in the culture that like, oh, there's devils in the game. And in the original uh, deities and demigods book, they had like all the Lovecraft monsters in it and they had to take it out because of copyright later, like with Chaosium and everything. But that was part of it. All the other stuff that I mentioned, like the, all the crossover with the moral majority stuff. And then the parents blaming the suicide on the game. And there was that underpinning of when these books started being carried in like, Ace Hardware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and the bookstore chains, the B. Dalton, the Waldens, that uh, people were finding out, like, holy shit, there's devils in here. 
that might have had an impact that like the kids know that like maybe the parents are going to be freaked out when they find out they're playing this game that had that association with it even though the kids are fighting the demons and you know yeah taking them down (laughs) yeah the kids check up on the detective at the station which like he's got to be like hmm wonder who gave me this map uh he tells them (laughs) He tells them they don't have idea one where Robbie is, but if he's in the caverns, he's dead. <laughs> so back at the dorms, they decide to accept that Robbie has become uh, Gerard de Pardue and will use the map and such to find him under that premise. This great hall, his brother's name was Hall, and the bird saying Happy Halloween flips a light switch in Kate that makes her realize he's looking for his brother somewhere and cut to 42nd Street, Manhattan, and Robbie is there wandering the streets. Not in his costume? At the dorm, they just decided to call it a night as they can't figure out what the fuck Two Towers means. (laughs) Robbie runs into two ruffians on the street who chase him, trying to mug mug his spells from him. And Robbie ends up stabbing one of them in the alley with a knife. He sees him as a monster from the cave, and he first holds up like a stone at him. Uh, but yeah, he, so he, he holds him off for a surprisingly long time with that stone. Looking at himself in the window, Robbie flips out and goes to <gasps> a payphone. <laughs> I was very happy. We returned to the payphone, and we had the beginning of the movie in the middle of the movie. It was was a real tour de force for us. He calls Kate Collect. Hello? I have a collect call from Robbie Wheelie. Will you accept the charges? Yes. Robbie? (laughs) Kate, I'm in New York. New York? Robbie, are you all right? What happened? Oh, no. I can't remember. Robbie, it's going to be all right. Where are you exactly? There's blood on my knife. Knife? What happened? Uh, it's on my hands. I think I killed somebody. I know I killed somebody. Robbie, just tell me where you are. Uh, 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 40th and, and, and 8th. Okay, Robbie. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully. It's going to be all right, Okay. Okay? Okay. She tells him to meet them at JJ's mom's place, and Kate and the gang are in such a hurry to go help him that they leave the next morning. Yep. <laughs> Robbie um, called me, stabbed some dude. Uh, tomorrow? Tomorrow's good. Tomorrow, eight? Oh, you're not a morning person? Okay, 11-ish? Get some lunch on the way? Okay. Well, it's going to take time for him to get to JJ's house, so, you know, there's no need for us to rush there either, even though we're farther away than he is, and he won't be able to get into the house if we're not there, but, you know, we'll... we'll uh, I like to sleep in. For some reason, JJ takes the fucking bird with him. He's like, Merlin's good luck! And I was like, wait, what? Which makes me wonder if they shot some scenes beforehand, Cause, and cause they were like, oh, he needs to take the bird because it's there. Uh, in those scenes. Why do you, there's no reason to take the bird at all. It doesn't help. I, I'm willing them. to bet this was a this was a pickup later because they realized that they kept shooting all the mom place scenes with the bird present. Ah. And then didn't realize, oh fuck, they didn't take the bird, so they probably reshot them leaving and him grabbing that bird. Because remember, at the beginning of the movie, he has the bird at his mom's place. So they probably right. shot all the, those scenes in one day. And the bird was there the whole time. The and then later was, yeah. on, mm-hmm. bad on you, set decorator. 
doing the decorator's house. So Robbie continues to wander the streets, and he sees two leathered-up goons that gives him a flashback of the previous night, which which sends him flying down into the subway tunnels and then below the subway tunnels. Yeah, and that does actually make some kind of sense because, you know, he's not mentally stable for for some reason. And sure, I, I, I would make sense that, you know, after... Killing, so we're potentially killing someone. We don't know if he killed anybody, but he probably, but he thinks he did. So he's got probably some kind of P, like PTSD, and he sees someone that looks like that again. That makes that that is one of the few things in this movie that makes any damn sense. Which he refers to these as a maze, and he freaks hearing the subway above and such. And during these scenes, they're like score moments. I swear they're stealing from Friday the Thirteenth movies. Strung in. I would, um, I maybe it's surprised. just a similar instrument or something, but I was like, wait a minute, I know that. So he runs into a homeless man, to which he introduces him as Pardue, a holy man, and the guy says, well, I'm the king of France, and then Robbie bows to him and asks <laughs> how long the guy has been in the mazes, and the guy says, years. Robbie asks about the giant dragon, which is the subway, and the guy says to stay away from up there. They'll catch him and throw him out. And then he asks about the Great Hall and the Two Towers, and the guy says, hey, I, I know the Two Towers. So uh, arriving, and so does the audience for the longest time before our three, <laughs> yes. quote-unquote, heroes find out. Like, as um, soon as they find out, as, as soon as Robbie's in New York, like, oh, I know where he's going to go. To studiously avoid the uh, Tolkien reference, because, you know, there, you, you've got a slippery slope trying to solve a puzzle that's related to gaming and so forth. And someone says the two towers and you immediately like, damn, or thank. And you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they could have gone that way, but obviously I don't think that's within Jaffe's wheelhouse. I mean, she's obviously <laughs> not in the ready player well, one reference game. <laughs> well, one of the, when they uh, find uh, Robbie's stuff and it says two towers, one of them, they do mention Tolkien a couple of times, but they pronounced it Tolkien. So probably, yeah, uh, Rhonda don't know shit about no Tolkien. It happened. Arriving at JJ's, the doorman says Robbie hasn't shown up yet, and the place is covered in sheets, and he says, oh, no, she's redecorating again. And Robbie's room now looks like the set of, like, Casablanca, <laughs> to which JJ is excited about it, and Kramer like, hey, dude, you're, you're friend, bud. <laughs> Yeah, like you can be relieved. You can't be excited at this. That's like if the other two weren't there, JJ would have given up the search just to hang out in his room. <laughs> like Robbie wanders and as the three friends ponder over the map in JJ's room as to what medieval place he could be going to. And uh, JJ then has the startling realization that it's the Twin Towers he's going to. It took the... <sighs> how? Oh my God, I was... Just, I was nearly screaming at the screen, like, he's in New York! <laughs> what? <laughs> Two towers! It's not It's not that hard! <laughs> What's 1984? <sighs> or two? Or, no, it's 1982! Put it together, assholes! Nilbog is goblin spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's a harder puzzle than the, than the two towers in New York! Alucard. That's a weird name. <laughs> Dr. The friends. <laughs> The friends arrive at the towers just before Robbie does, and they go toward the top. Robbie enters and starts heading up as his friends are going back down, and from the lobby, they spot him. They shout he doesn't do anything. They all head up separate elevators. The friends go to the... When when they're, like, running around looking for Robbie, I'd I'd like to point out that, um, unlike earlier in the movie, when they were in the caverns, uh, they don't split up. Something to think about. You know, just good tip in a game or in... fucking life especially when they're in the 
damn cave. Well, get to, uh, we can go back to that, but it just I just noticed that when they were just running around looking for him. The friends go to the observatory, can't find him, but then they see a door that's buzzing and closing, and they chase through it, leading them up to the rooftop where Robbie is about to jump, and they get his attention by calling him Pardue, and he says he's going to the Great Hall, and he'll be fine because he's going to cast spells, and then JJ says, no, you don't have enough points because he's the maze controller and has authority in the game, and the word game, suddenly Robbie is shaken by it, and has a breakdown. Cue the Emmy clip for Tom Hanks here. Yeah. JJ, what am I doing here? Kate, why can't I remember? It was, it, it was sad because he comes to the realization, like, I don't know how I got here. I think that's that's pretty scary that you're on top of the World Trade Center like, and you don't know how you got there. But then Hanks kind of comes off as a, like, five-year-old you told, no, you can't get a toy, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> his delivery here. He's not me- he's, he's not altogether mentally, you know, so <laughs> I guess we can give him a pass, maybe. I don't know. They're <sighs> asking him to do an awful lot right. in this movie with, without a whole hell of a lot of support. His biggest dramatic move, I think, to this point was when he was in uh, Family Ties as Alex's criminal alcoholic uncle. Mm-hmm. Like, before that, I think that might have been like his most seen dramatic moment <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> before. Right. Before, it was the same year. I don't okay. know if this came first or he did a couple episodes when he was on the run from the feds, but he he didn't have a lot of opportunities previous to that to kind of like do anything. And mm-hmm. so, like we've already a- a- addressed the fact that Hanks is is good, you know, better than the material would lead you to believe. But man, he can only do so much. Right, yeah. and it's a TV movie that's probably shooting on the fly to hurry up and hit this. Oh yeah. Panic. Bad. So everyone embraces on the rooftop, and then three months later, which in the course of this movie, a, a child was probably conceived and born, <laughs> Kate, Daniel, and JJ are driving to see Robbie. Kate tells them she's writing her book on everything that happened. JJ is now in the theater arts department as a director. He goes, I think we're all going to be famous one day. And Daniel has given up on his dreams and apparently is going to be the future captain of industry with computer software. Victory parents. Robbie is apparently seeing a doctor and is living at home. They hope he'll be back next semester at school. Robbie's mom, without a drink in her hand, is thrilled to see them as Robbie's friends don't come around anymore. And I'm like, wait, aren't they his only friends? Like, I, yeah. I, I didn't... I, I, anyways, uh, uh, she doesn't blame them for what happened and it had nothing to do with them. He was fragile at the time. They pressured him into playing the game. It's all their uh, fault. So when they find Robbie out back, he looks like he's a, a mental patient and all white, and he's completely gone, like only addressing them as their characters, at, and he is Pardue, and the friends are all shaken by this. But when he talks of an enchanted evil forest beyond the lake, they indulge him by making up uh, details about the treasure and danger that lies beyond. They all wander toward the forest to check it out as Kate in a voiceover tells us, And so we played the game again for one last time it didn't matter that there were no maps or dice or no monsters Pardue saw the monsters we did not we saw nothing but the death of hope and the loss of our friend and so we played the game until the sun began to set and all the monsters were dead the end and Dungeons and Dragons was banned and never played again in the world at least he got an eternally renewing coin out of it Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. 
that's how he paid the innkeeper, also known as his mother, to his stay mother. there. Yeah. Yeah, dad wasn't around. <sighs> yeah. Um, and if I if I was willing to wager, I bet I'm, I I want to guess that like Daniel's dad ended up leaving his life somehow too. So they're all fatherless children. Sure. Well, you know, this is the death of hope. My God, right, yeah. I could not believe that. All all we saw was the death of hope. I don't know if they could have made that more bleak if they tried. <laughs> like it, the only way it could have been more bleak is if like Robbie killed himself in the forest. Like that's the which only in real way. life that's what the kid that he's based on like killed himself after many attempts. Like this kid was trying to leave this world desperately and finally succeeded later on. Yeah, the, I'm trying to. What the hell happened to the, the the kid? He was like working. He hung himself, I think, or he shot himself. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. He was um he he was working as an oil field laborer. He worked there for a few days, and that's when he was finally killed himself. Yeah, it's done in such a touching manner, but I can't help think how ridiculous this all fucking is. <laughs> like during this, like what they're trying to tell us about this this game is done. And like, how many? How many kids do you think watched this movie and quit playing Dungeons and Dragons? Zero. I was going to say four. Four. Um, <laughs> it resonated because, again, like the personal anecdote with this, I was in a class. It was my fifth grade year, so we're talking like eighty-three to eighty-four school year, okay? And we played on lunch, right? So one of the guys had some stuff, some books and things, and so we would play on lunch sometimes. And it's not like we were like hiding in the steam tunnels or anything. We'd play outside. Yeah. <laughs> if it was yeah. warm. You know, we'd like go sit at a table or just sit on the sidewalk. There were like five of us. And uh, one day, because this is like one of those early 80s versions of like what they call like higher ability now, but we, we had a program coordinator, right? And she came in the room and she saw the stuff up on top of the uh, cabinet where Matt kept his stuff. And she sort of flipped out. And gave us this whole speech about how we couldn't play it anymore and everything because, you know, people get really caught up in this. And, and we're all like, what the fuck are you talking about? We play at lunch. You know, everything is on top of the cabinet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and we were thinking like she was saying that we were going to be doing that instead of, of working. But it was really, you know, kind of connected to this whole like we we can't have them be seen playing the game. You know, they can't play the game. It's the game is dangerous. You know, and it was a I, I, it was a real experience with it, and I'm like, this is nuts, this is insane. And one of the reasons we did it, you know, was like because we were like ten. We didn't live in biking distance like the Stranger Things kids, so that's when we got to play with people. <laughs> you could you could put together a thing and say, hey, we're gonna go play Wednesday night. It's not a dorm, yeah. You know, it's fifth grade, so like lunch and stuff. That's when you could do it. But no, you know, fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> They, they wouldn't let us do it. And so it, it was kind of startling to, to, you know, have run into that, like, actually myself at one time. Freelick! Aren't you dead? Didn't you die when you leaped into the pit? Hey, come on, Robbie, stop fooling around. It is you, Freelick, you have been restored to the living. Whoever did that is a great holy man. Now comes the point in the episode where we rate the movie we just watched. As we are cults in the cavalcade, we keep things nice and culty. Our ratings are as follows. Stay with your family, which means you're like your normal Robbie. You, you came to school, you're going to just do good, get grades, maybe find a girl. Converted, which means, okay, you'll, you'll play this game again. Maybe you're having a couple bad dreams here and there. You're fine, but it's solid. It's a good time. Or... 
Drinking the Kool-Aid, which means you are you are pardue. You are fully into this. It's crazy. You're losing your mind over it. You're obsessed with Mazes and Monsters. So, Troy, how do you rate Mazes and Monsters? I'm afraid I'm going to have to fall in the middle. I'm going to have to go converted, and I'll tell you why. Um, the converted thing falls mainly on the fact that I think it's an artifact of the time that people should see. <laughs> Um, not because of, of inherent greatness or anything, you know, it's like, if we're going to talk about something from like the same year or anything, you know, this isn't me trying to get you to see Beastmaster. This is, Hey, you want to, you want to get a sense of the cultural stuff that was going on in here? Watch this movie. So I'm going to encourage people to see it based on that, but it's not because of my deep, uh, love for it. It remains like a, a piece of curiosity for me. Um, if that makes sense. Mazes and Monsters is a piece of irresponsible propaganda. I mean, there's, I, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it other uh, than that. So I think it is, it is, it's really important that people see this. Like, it's not like, um, like Reefer Madness, where you watch like, oh, that's so silly. They trump it up way too far, and they, and they do make it, you know, ridiculous stuff. Is clearly not based on actual facts. It's just, it's just fear. And I think it's really important for people to watch this to see that this is this is what propaganda is, you know, and it's just it's just fear mongering. And to know that this was on a network not that long ago, you know, it was still like within the lifetime of many people uh, still around. And I don't know. I think that's it's a little scary that uh, that this happened. And I think people should should watch it just so like, okay. I can identify, you know, what propaganda is. It can be very, uh, I don't know, this isn't charming, but it can be. You know, it tells a narrative and a story, and that can just get stuck in your head, and you start thinking that, I guess you can kind of be like Robbie, where you can't tell the difference between reality and and make-believe. So I, I do I do think it's important that people see this, you know, laugh at the stupid stuff, but understand that this was presented as entertainment and as a warning to parents. Like like this movie could have ended with someone saying it could happen to your children or your children or yours. Like it legitimately could have ended like that. So that's why I am converted on it, and I do think people should watch this movie. So, Brandon, how do you rate Mazes and Monsters? I both love and hate that this movie was made. <laughs> like, for obvious reasons, like the propaganda ones, like Colin was talking, like, because it's so false and everything. But I, I, I have to say, I do think it's like Reefer Madness. Like, it, this movie, the whole time, I'm like, this is ridiculous with all this stuff. And the movie is trying, I think it's hilarious that the movie's trying to tell us that one thing's evil while clearly showing us the actual reasons for. Uh, you know, Robbie's problems and, and issues that may come up with the kids uh, without, I think, even knowing it's doing that. And there, there's some silly stuff. There's actually, you know, it's actually competently told, which helps some scenes where, like Cullen said, he, he got mad that he was getting moved in a scene, which is it's true. He's, he's not alone, um, like JJ. Uh, but there, there's stupid stuff in here. It's, it's entertaining to see because it's 
crazy. Like, I, I think, like, later on, I mean, this is the end of stuff like this. Like, I think uh, the film from the end of the, the 90s, 8mm, uh, was like that with uh, por- with porn. Like, if you go back to it now, it's it's uh, it's pretty hilarious uh, to watch what you know they thought about porn. Which maybe we'll do that sometime on here on this show. And uh, yeah, and there's young Tom Hanks in his first big role. Like, you know, it's 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 converted. It's easy to recommend seeing this movie just to be like, wow, people be crazy, especially kids. Kids like younger that missed the boat on this will look at it like we look at Reefer Madness because they didn't live here. They pro- maybe even didn't even know this kind of crap existed and would be just blown away by like, what really? Just this, it was this damn board game. Like, wow. So, yeah, converted. It's funny that you made the, the mention of 8mm because it, it's going to be interesting to see what the, the pieces of our time, not like the Dinesh D'Souza crap, but you know, like yeah. the actual films are. Right. Like 13 hours or something like that. Well, yeah, cause, I mean, because eight millimeter was made at the time when the internet was just starting to become big, and you know, people looked at porn, of course, all over the internet. And, and what do you think of that? And it was like, who are? Because it was mainly porn was such a like underground, not a lot of people watched it. But like, who were the people behind making these porn movies? Like, no one, like the the common Joe didn't know. They didn't. There, there were porn fans, of course, and it was like. They had their awards, but they didn't know who these people were. So it was kind of this idea of like, who are these people? And it's just so ludicrous. So crazy. It's like done, you know, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote it. So it's very much like wants to be the next seven because he wrote seven. So it's, and it's, I think it was the film he did after that. So it's, it's pretty good. And plus you get that great scene with Nicolas Cage watching the snuff film and reacting to it. Is the skeleton evil? No. Is it helpful? Time will tell. Perhaps there's a clue hidden in the skull. Beware of the sacrilege. On the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be discussing Nightmare Weekend from 1986. A crazy little horror film. Yeah, we'll be there for that. I want to thank everyone who makes us a part of your week every other week. And thanks to Troy for returning to your to the show for the hat trick. What should people be looking out for from you right now? Let's stick with SparkShooter at SparkShooter.com. And, you know, my social media stuff, all the announcements will be filtered through there. So at Troy Brownfield. All right. Uh, we look forward to next time. But first, stay tuned to the trailer for Nightmare Weekend, the trailer that actually trails. You are about to enter the 21st century of terror. Nightmare Weekend. A group of college students were invited to spend a pleasure weekend in a mansion, but instead experienced a Nightmare Weekend. Nightmare Weekend. The first high-tech terror film. Witness an experiment so frightening that it will never leave your mind. Experience a lust for power so gruesome that you may lose your mind. When modern technology gets out of human control, the action never stops. Nightmare Weekend. It's the first high-tech terror film. Nightmare Weekend. The 21st century of terror. Read it off.
for listening to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, part of the Creative Zombie Studios Network. For press opportunities, advertising opportunities, and more information on Cult Cinema Cavalcade, contact mail at cultcinemacavalcade.com. Produced by Brad Shoemaker. Edited by Brandon Peters. Narration by Rebecca Peters. Theme song Pink Baby by Happy Elf appears courtesy of the freemusicarchive.org network. The film and music featured in this episode are part of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Join us again in two weeks for a new episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade. I, I recently, um, I went to a donut shop and I got some uh, some donuts, as you do. And uh, my wedding ring is uh, the Flash, like the, the yeah. same kind of ring that he wears. And I, I you know, pulled my wallet and I paid for it. And she saw my ring, the, the woman behind the counter is like, oh, is that a Big Bang Theory ring? And uh, I, 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 I was polite and I said, no, that's the, like, no, that's the Flash. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that they're supposed to be referencing and just... <sighs> I had already picked up my donuts, so I couldn't leave. That but it did, did bother me. Yeah. Well, it's extra irritating because I have a flash wallet as well. Like, clearly, I'm into something here, and you don't get it. Yeah. Well, my my uh, friend Russ Burlingame one time referred to the Big Bang Theory as like the closest thing nerd culture has to a menstrual show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The um, no, Big Bang Theory is nerd blackface. That's yeah. That's just yeah. The facts. <laughs>